0: Yesterday, we discussed favourite tracks, and Jenny Morton said this song here was one of her all-time faves. And I had never heard of this track by the Violent Femmes, which led to a, um, how, how shall we say, roasting uh, uh, on Twitter. Uh, but you can't know everything in the world, right, Neil Miller? You'd know that. Yeah, but you should know this song. Well, should you? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean,
1: I, I want to <laughs> apologise right now to your producers in the Wellington studio who had to enjoy me doing air drumming through that entire clip.
2: Yeah, Brody, should we know this song? Of course you should know the song. So you've heard it too? Wallace. I actually, I thought you were a lot cooler than you now Whoa. seem to be. Yeah. I well, thought you were, like, quite cool. And, someone like, had retro. to say it. Someone yeah. had to say it. I'm surprised. So... Anyway,
0: I thought that we'd put the song up for scrutiny, further scrutiny by comedian and sometime panelist Ed Amon. But Ed also reviewed Wuthering <laughs> Wuthering Heist by Kate Bush this year, who said on first listen it wasn't too bad. Uh, so Ed Amon is with it's us now. A Ed...
1: Glorious song.
3: <laughs> Ed Kiona, welcome. Kiona everyone. How is it all going? And first of all, I'd like to say I'm extremely disappointed with the nation's reaction to um, your lack of hearing of this song. I am extremely... Uh, you can live a very successful life without knowing this song. I'm with you, Wallace. I'm with you.
0: Exactly, exactly
3: Ed, right? I mean, had you heard of the Violent films? No, I haven't. I mean, it's been in the background sometimes. It was one of the open, it was the intro to my uh, festival show, but I had no idea because it's only famous for that intro part. So when you asked me to do this, I listened to it like 35 times. And uh, by the end of it, I had a blister in my ear. So it's um, it's, uh, (laughs) a. I know there will be a weird, great reaction around it, but I listened to it. Quite a lot of times, it's a fantastic song, but it's one of those songs that you can only listen to a couple of times, but uh, it's going to take its time. And I, I was amazed with the name of the band, uh, Violent Femmes. Um, it, it's like a phrase that my extremely misogynist grandfather uh, would use to refer to feminists. So it's, I don't know how they picked up their brand, brand, uh, band name first. So before we go and... to Brody
0: and Neil, uh, yeah. what did you make of the songs slash lyrics?
3: Well, the lyrics are um, extremely, um, what you can say, pedestrian, I can say that. Uh, it's, um, it's no comparison to Withering Heights because Withering Heights was a great story of humans and ghosts and their love story. But um, the, this one was, I don't know, it was crazy. I did some research and it was... Uh, for a long time people were thinking that it was about masturbation then the band corrected that it was about um, a special type of dreams and uh, but to me it sounded like um, a song about bedwetting okay and yeah
0: <laughs> all right so more okay neil <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I want to talk about Wuthering Heights to start with. Firstly, it is a great song, and at four minutes long, it is about two and a half days shorter than the book, and packs a lot more emotion into it. So that's great. I mean, I think the song—I just love the—I love the drum. Um, I think it's very repetitive, very catchy. Uh, I'm really deeply disturbed by some of the interpretations that have just been put on it. Um, I hadn't thought about those before, and now I probably won't be able to stop for another couple of days because the song will be stuck in my head for a couple of days. It's that kind, of, that kind of thing so I think it's a great song and um, I don't know I guess it was just everywhere when I was at university it was one of the most played songs right up there with Victoria by the exponents
0: have you been living under a rock violent feminist absolutely classic Brody?:
2: Look, do you know what I'm really surprised <clears throat> I didn't realise that it was released um, in 1983 I thought it was kind of when I was a teenager so absolutely not but it was great it was a, it, yeah it's a jam you s- sing along to it it's fantastic all right, so big thumbs up for that. Oh, so Edamond,
0: uh, out of ten, what would you give it?
3: About two and a half, two five. <laughs> yes. it's, uh, but I, I really, really understand that you know if you've grown up with this, it it runs in your bones. But maybe if you come to it in your thirties, like me, maybe you might have a different opinion.
0: Oh, Edamon, thanks for being on the program. There, uh, thank you, Wallace. <laughs> you've been living under a rock. Um, so maybe, maybe get that guy to review some songs by Cypress Hill at all. <laughs> um, it is 22 to 5, the panel indeed National. Well, uh, an article in the list by Nola Noel Hare, Tales of the Murder House, asks, Is it time to bring back dental services? It's been 100 years since the service was founded to address the poor oral health of children. In 15 years since it was reoriented to a community-based service, it was meant as a shift in approach from treatment to prevention, and yet inequalities in dental care remain. Thousands of kids are still having rotten teeth removed. We talked about this a few weeks ago when Patrick Gow was on, and he was all for it.
1: Bring back the murder house. Um, Bring back the murder house with the community hubs, we know that if you're working in two jobs um, and something happens where parents are working one job each, you can't get the kids to the community hub, you miss your appointment. Schools are where we've got them in one place.
0: With us is Jonathan Broadbent, Associate Professor, Dental Public Health Otago. Uh, Jonathan, Kiota, welcome to the programme. Okay, thanks for having me So it's quite a wide-ranging uh, article in the list of this one, uh, looking at various parameters and aspects of dental health, but... Uh, would it make sense to reinstate this, this type of universal school-based service, or is its time passed?
4: Oh, it's time's past. I think. I, I, I agree with a lot of what Patrick Carr says, but mm. I don't agree with the idea of bringing back these school dental service clinics. I don't think that would um, make a terrible lot of sense. You know, um, what the likelihood of Our tails for a very long time. We need to start with a preventive approach. Now, if you're talking school-age children, um, dental caries levels in, you know, like kids who are at year eight, they've dropped from, um, uh, that got uh, far better um, at that age in that age group. So uh, it's like 70% of them are now caries-free, whereas it used to be 35% caries-free. 30 years ago so that's got way better the problem is the preschoolers the problem is at age five so that's where the numbers aren't getting better oh right the decay occurs before they get to school you don't Mm. need school clinics to get the preschoolers
0: i see so how is that before we move on to our panelists um give us the explanation or some of the reasons for why that is happening why um, uh, we why, didn't why why we're seeing caries really so early at uh, the ages of 4 or 5
4: well um, you know caries has improved uh through to, caries levels improved among 5 year olds through to around about the 1990s, and then they've sort of stagnated. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
4: um, uh, the statistics haven't changed much in the past 20 years. You know, pretty much two teeth per child in 1998, and two teeth per child in 2018. And there are some serious inequalities where uh, Pacific children and Maori children are left behind in those statistics. So they you know, considerably high, particularly among Pacific children, uh, their caries prevalence is much higher. So that that's where a concern really needs to be. And, you know, with a hub and spoke model um, to get to where the children are, that's brilliant. But also it's about having you know, starting your approach with
0: Okay, you
2: know uh, things like that. All oh, right, uh, or Brodie, what do you think? I just got a question. I, I read that um, they're looking to centralise the fluoridation program and give give the powers of fluoridation to the Director General of Health. Is that if that happens, and then he goes right fluoridation in all of the water across all of the land? Surely that will make a big difference as well.
4: It will help. in regions which don't currently have fluoridation, that's sure. Um, But fluoride fluoride in water supplies is not the solution for the children with very severe caries uh, due to having, uh, you know, a that might not be ideal or having developmental defects of their teeth or something like that. In those circumstances, what you need is uh, toothbrushes getting into the children's mouths as early as possible and for... um, uh, lollies and sugary drinks not getting into their mouths,
2: and, and does that involve taxing those things? The you know the the sugary drinks. Do we need a sugar tax?
4: Well, you know that's something that I would like, but there are other means to you know there are other levers to to pull to try to get some change in that. Um, certainly, um, uh, I, I would uh, favour. Uh, in any approach that's going to help reduce that, um, you know, warning labels and uh, advising that these products are not recommended for children uh, or shouldn't be consumed by children, that water and milk are the only drinks that children should should be drinking. They shouldn't be having these acidic, sugary, carbonated drinks at all.
0: OK, uh, water and milk. All right, Neil Miller, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think there's got to be an element of parental responsibility here for kids that really can't make their decisions um, at such a young age. I mean, the article uses the example of Scotland and um, its admittedly or apparently successful uh, dental program. Uh, And one of the policies was free toothbrushes. And that just raises the question to me, what parent doesn't buy each of their children a toothbrush? Um, Surely that would be one of the first things you would spend money on. Um, And then the other bit that got me was, uh, and this is a quote, uh, supervised brushing. Now, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it does sound a little... um compulsive and a bit intrusive Um, so I think, you know, we've just got to say say to parents, look, you know you've got to look after your kids, what goes into their mouth and and the toothbrushes and the toothpaste Um, it's your responsibility and you need to get good habits into them early and um, you'll save a lot of money in dental bills going forward
0: Well, So the element, uh, final point uh, there Jonathan, parental responsibility, I mean what a parent doesn't have a toothbrush for their kids but uh, I understand that supervised brushing programs are quite successful
4: yeah, I could disagree with, you know, there is there is always, uh, you know, parents should look after their children and be responsible, but the children's rights issue, not a parent's responsibilities issue. You know, we have a problem with children's rights where children are having decay because they're not getting the the preventive care that they need. So whatever ways that we can uh, act to improve things for children and things like uh, in-school Brushing or in preschool brushing programs or what our own uh, country plans to do with a very similar sort of toothbrush program uh, to what is done in Scotland. Okay. Uh, that is already um, uh, on the cards.
0: All right, Jonathan Broadbent, uh, Associate Professor of Dental and Public Health, Otago Kiara. Thank you very much. 13 to 5, the panel are NZ National. A really big response to this already. When pronunciation matters and when it really doesn't. It's a very interesting opinion piece and stuff. A British survey has revealed the mispronounced words that infuriate people the most, including espresso, arctic, what's the other way of pronouncing that? And probably. Probably. Mm -hmm. And nothing gets RNZ listeners more animated than saying library, rather than library. Dr. Julia DeBrez writes, It's natural to have feelings about the variation we notice, and that a friend of hers says she lives for the righteous outrage she experiences on seeing a spelling error. And if that gets her through the day, I'm happy for her. And indeed, today's pronunciation error can be tomorrow's linguistic innovation. But... Pronunciation does sometimes matter. More on that later. With us is Massey University socio- Sociolinguist and Lecturer Doctor Julia Debrez. Doctor Debres, DeBres Kyoto. Why do people Care so much about this. It's quite a phenomenon, Julia.
5: Well, I think part of it is that we're really trained from the cradle to the grave to feel and deeply believe that there is one standard form of language that we should all aspire to, and that all deviations from that standard are somehow inferior. But it really doesn't stack up against the fact that variation in pronunciation is omnipresent in English in all languages, and linguistically, we would say there's inherently nothing wrong with one pronunciation compared to another. Mm-hmm. It's just that some of them are more socially valued than
0: others. <laughs> okay, so what am I doing? If I say probably and not probably, am I lazy or is it evolution?
5: In that case, I would say you're probably being e- efficient and also uh, <laughs> you're, you're reducing the, the, the number of consonants that are involved and you can reduce it even further. There's, you know, some people say "proly," like P-R-O-L-L-Y. Really? Which, you know, does probably. actually at that point starts to irritate me a bit too. Um, <laughs> but so we can, I mean, we also need to think about the fact of the context of speaking. There's a kind of informality involved when people speak, speaking in certain kinds of contexts and want to come across as friendly and so on. And if you go around pronouncing every single consonant in a word, you're probably going to start to look a little, um, you know, a bit of a dork maybe at parties.
0: Brody.
2: Oh, okay. So some of my absolute clangers are when people say something or nothing. Um, Noel Leeming's and John <laughs> Keys and Mike Hosking's <laughs> and Jacinta um, uh, performance. So they have just, they're, they're my ones, but I do. John, I sort Keys, of, Jacinta. John Keys, Jacinta. I mean Mike Hoskins we can probably not worry so much about but um you know I think that what we probably do is the more comfortable you are around the people you are the faster we talk therefore the lazier our our, our talking is um, but there are some there are some clangers that re- that I get I will admit that I get judgy but you did something before where you mucked up your sayings and that's something that I actually do all the time so mm. I think if we just sort of appreciate when people are just Innocently uh, maybe making a mistake or deliberately, you know?
1: Neil? Well, I've, I've got the um, unusual situation where I've actually had three accents in, in my life. And so my pronunciation has changed quite dramatically. As a baby, uh, it would have been Scottish. Um, probably didn't say very much. Uh, probably. But, <laughs> but as a young kid, um, it was an English accent. Um, and then I came over to New Zealand and went to primary school in Christchurch and got that beaten out of me pretty darn quickly, and now I have my New Zealand accent. Um, So my pronunciation has changed, even though I I still look at the words the same. Uh, I think, for me, um, I I can tolerate a a bit of months. (laughs) mispronunciation (laughs) I'd love to say I did that on purpose Uh, mispronunciation in conversation because as has been noted you're going faster it's more informal what really bugs me is the spelling mistakes when someone writes about Helen Clark with an E or John Keyes it's like how are we supposed to take your opinion on this person seriously Mm. when they're a well known figure and you can't even spell their name right so that bugs me more than mispronunciation right, hey now uh, uh, Julia you 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 mentioned
0: uh, in the piece that English might be doing just fine on its own, but that's not the case for languages that have been forcibly repressed under the weight of English for centuries. When does pronunciation matter?
5: Well, I think that it really matters in terms of how we pronounce words from Te Reo Māori. And that's because, um, you know, we're in a situation where we need to always take into account the social and political context of, of, you know, um, the languages, forms that we're using. Um, And I think that there might be a future time when within the Māori language we'll have these same kind of quibbles around how to pronounce one word versus another within Māori. And that would be parallel to what's happening in New Zealand at the moment. But I think that at this point in time when Māori remains very endangered, then by making an effort to m- pronounce a word from Māori in a Māori way, that's a way of showing support for the revitalisation of te reo Māori. And that's really important given the specific history of, of colonisation in New Zealand, which was, you know, a linguistic project as well as a political project. you got
0: such a big response to this, Julie. You must be uh, uh, be, be, be fascinating at, uh, at at let's just say dinner parties where the, the subject <laughs> comes up. I want to know, you because you say, when's the last time you heard someone pronounce all the con- Consonants and vowels, and Wednesday, February, and Worcester, Worcester. How do
5: you how do you you say Worcester? Worcester. Yeah, well, I say you'd say Worcester sauce, right? No, would you? No. Yeah. Worcestershire. I say,
1: Look, we've got some variation isn't that fascinating Worcestershire sauce. there's actually a, a celebrity chef on YouTube who has a gimmick where every time he uses that particular sauce he pronounces it a different way and he's never pronounced it the same way twice in his entire series um, so, so Julia
5: how do you say it? I say Worcester sauce, but you know it now I'm, do- look, I'm doubting myself. It doesn't look like Worcester it to me. It doesn't look anything like it. But that's one definite feature of English: that the way we pronounce things has got nothing to do with how we spell them. Oh, would- Saint
2: John is Sinjin. Okay. Oh, uh, would wouldn't Wouldn't I, uh, I? Think we can all agree that? Uh, well, I don't know actually if we can all agree. I'm just going to make a statement. <laughs> I mean, English is just so. <laughs> clunky, isn't it? Like, if, if you look at te reo Māori, um, or uh, French, for instance, beautiful languages. <laughs> we're like, g'day mate, how are you?
5: You know, you, I don't know, I think we're, just, we're just clunky. Yeah, but all we could say it's delightfully chaotic, you know, because yeah. we also use this variation to express important parts of our cultural identity. There's one thing that really annoys people often is use, and oh, uh, you know, um, yeah, in me. New Zealand English, and it annoys people, but if you think about the reasons for it, that is actually understood to be a feature that comes from Māori English. And if you think about the fact that in the Māori language, you have plural and singular forms of you, as you do in French, you know, tu and vous, And so putting an S on the end of it in English is actually a reflection of a kind of Māori cultural and linguistic concept. i
0: better let you go, Dr. Breeze, because people are outraged by your presence. Um,
5: (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Will will somebody escort me out from (laughs) the (laughs) terrace? Thank you. I'll be
0: leaving
1: in a separate car. (laughs) Thank
0: (laughs) you. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you. Finally, for those struggling with high blood pressure, it appears you might be able to lower it just by looking at art. So should doctors start prescribing art gallery visits to stressed out patients? Recent research out of University, Auckland, University of Auckland reviewed the findings of 14 studies on the stress-relieving effects of artwork. And researcher Dr Michaela Law is with us now. Dr Law, kia ora. Welcome to the program.
6: Thank you.
0: So interesting. So, could we see doctors one day prescribing visits to art galleries as a treatment for stress?
6: I, I don't think we can necessarily go that far.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: So, what we found from the research was that looking at artwork can decrease uh, psychological stress and also blood pressure. But of course, that doesn't mean that it is a treatment for stress or blood pressure. So, I don't think we can go that far. But I think we can say that on top of normal stress reduction techniques and things such as blood pressure medication. Viewing artwork could also bring your stress down quite a lot, especially if you're in quite a stressful situation.
0: This could have ramifications for the likes of our office walls. Uh, I know that when uh, RNZ did hang up uh, some real pieces of art, for example, for a period, it was actually, I'm not going to say sort of calming or soothing, but there was something nice about the office.
6: Oh, yeah, definitely. I think workspaces are definitely a place where people are quite stressed. So, hanging artwork could be quite an easy thing to lower that stress. In fact, one of the studies did actually look at a mock office environment, and they found that just putting artworks around actually decreased anger in the workplace. So, there's another Ooh. interesting thing that we could get from it as yeah. well. Brady?
2: Yeah, see, art's one of those ones, isn't it, where I've always found that I I don't know the rules around it, mm. um, what's cool and what's not, and, and sometimes I'll see a painting and think that I could have done that, I could have thrown ten colours at the canvas and <laughs> right. made a million dollars. But it, it is a nice, I think it is a nice um, space. I wonder whether I could offer you a suggestion, though, um, and perhaps for the next study, the doctors yep. should be looking at prescribing beach walks, because I think beach walks also would be a good uh, way to reduce stress. I had a terrible day on Monday, went for Mm. a walk on the beach, boom, Mm. fixed.
6: No, you're you're 100% right there. So there is a lot of research that shows just being in nature is really good for your stress, and not just stress, but your health as well. So luckily what we found is that that did seem to come over into nature artworks as well. Right. So as well mm. as going outside, just looking at a picture of a beach can seem to have similar effects. So if you're not able to go outside, mm. for example, you're hospitalised or you're stuck in a, you know, your work office, that this can be a good, um, a good alternative to if you can't go outside. Yeah. But yes, nature is definitely oh, really important in yeah. this area of research.
1: Yeah, I have a a different um, solution uh, or different (laughs) suggestion. And and by different, I mean much better than the ones that have been put forward today. Um, And if it's it's about reducing stress by doing something that you like in an environment, um, a creative environment, um, I would suggest that um, you could go to the pub and get a free beer. I think that oh, would... Oh, Medically, well, that would there's have... There's some this
6: negative si- things with that as well, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, well, there's some p- pretty negative things about art as well. You have to put up with a <laughs> yeah. lot of pretension. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I've...
3: <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, unlike anyone else on the show,
1: I've probably tried to read the paper, uh, the scientific <laughs> paper behind this. And look... I for my, for my job, I read council reports and government documents all day. I've got to say that scientific paper was hard, hard work, and I'm so glad that you did an abstract at the start.
0: Michaela, just as a side note, uh, Neil Miller is a beer writer, so that's where the beer uh, yeah. thing came into it. I, 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 I want to know, because I, ha- I did spend a bit of time in hospital many years ago, and one thing I have noticed that there has been some type of movement to actually get art uh, into hospitals for this exact reason.
6: Yeah, exactly, because for a long time we've kind of always said art is good for you, but there hasn't been real research to back that up. But it's, it's most of the research that we looked at was in the last 10 years, so it's definitely becoming a thing that we're more focusing on and realising, hey, it actually does have a benefit, especially if you are hospitalised, because it's yep. quite boring and you don't have much to do or white
0: right, local you
6: know, walls to look at.
0: Kia ora for that, Dr Law there. Uh, very interesting. And Brody Kane, Neil Miller, fantastic stuff. Thanks for being with me. And a big thanks to Alex Higby for producing the show.